You can get 10 weeks of The Spectator as well as unlimited access to our website, app and archive if you subscribe today. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS to get a free bottle of PIMS and 10 weeks of the issue for just £10. That's spectator.co.uk forward slash PIMS. But hurry, it's only while stocks last. Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Ed Balls. Ed Balls is a British broadcaster, writer, economist and a former cabinet minister. Elected as the MP for Normanton in 2005, he served as Secretary of State for Children, Schools and Families and Shadow Secretary for Education, Shadow Home Secretary and Shadow Chancellor. After his parliamentary career, he has taken part in the Great Sport Relief Bake Off and won Celebrity Best Home Cook. He has written two memoirs, and the second of which, Appetite, Out Now, focuses on his life through food. Ed, welcome to Table Talk. Good to be here. Ed, we always start this podcast in the same place with the question, what are your earliest memories of food? I think my earliest memories of food are having roast dinner every Sunday with my mum and dad and then my and my sister and my brother. I, I guess I can sort of remember before my brother arrived on the scene and it would be a rotation of roast beef or pork or lamb, always Yorkshire puddings, always after we'd got back from church. We went to church every Sunday morning. Back then it would be the one day of the week where my mum and dad would have a glass of wine and would listen to family favourites on BBC Radio 2. My earliest memory, well... My earliest food encounter was having roast beef and Yorkshire puddings at three weeks old, but I don't remember that. Was that pureed? How how were you eating that? Well, so there we were living in the centre of Norwich and the health visitor came to visit my mum and said, you know, I think I'd be like £10 when I was born, so I was quite a big baby. And after three weeks, she came to visit and said, milk's not enough for him. He should go on to solids. And uh, I mean, these days, I think they say... You should wait six months, but this was three weeks. And you're bouncing, baby, get him eating. So, yes, my dad went out into Norwich and bought a Moulinex, um, which was like the gadget of the late 60s. It was a, a food kind of musher, a food processor, the earliest food processor. I actually went back and looked at the adverts. If you look online at the 60s adverts for the Moulinex, it was all about, about liberating the housewife from her apron strings in order to be able to enjoy life because she can puree with her moulinex. So it was like the very, very kind of old-fashionedly early days of women's liberation. So it was moolied. I had pulped roast beef and Yorkshire puddings, <laughs> aged three weeks old, and I've never looked back. And were mealtimes important to your family? Yeah, it was a big deal. My mum was a butcher's daughter. My mum and dad both grew up just like 100 yards from each other in the centre of Norwich, but my mum's Dad had a butcher's shop and there were seven children and they all had lunch together every day of the week. Even when her older brothers and sisters were working in the centre of Norwich, in the Norwich Union or wherever, they'd all come home for lunch. And of course, being a butcher, they had meat every day. And so the sitting around the table as a family eating was something which my mum had grown up with very much. And I think my dad too, they lived in a a much smaller little house, a terraced house in the centre of Norwich and I think there, there was just about room to get everybody around the table. So my dad was favourite thing was always to eat with 
a tray on his knees when we were growing up in front of the TV, but that was not really allowed on a Sunday. But yes, I think being around the table and eating together and there were certain things about it, you know, it was bad to be late. You know, you should always be on time and whatever activities we had, you couldn't not be there for Sunday lunch. And it's something which, you know, which we've carried on throughout our lives. It's the one meal where wherever the, our kids are in the world, they know if they arrive back on Sunday, they can have Sunday lunch. And we're a little bit more flexible with the time now. So I think my youngest daughter would rather do her homework and have it like six or seven in the evening, which I sort of give in to. But ideally, I'd go back to one o'clock. And was it your mother who taught you to cook? It was, very much. My mum was one of those very kind of traditional 60s, 70s home cooks in a time when there were, there were no herbs, no fresh herbs. Actually, even using kind of spices was pretty unusual. My mum would never cook anything international other than the fact that they had lived out in America in the 1960s when my dad was um, a young academic and she'd learned all these slightly American recipes. I think this was like American traditional food as much as British traditional food. It wasn't hugely Asian, but things like lasagna or plum kuchen or um, beef stroganoff were things that she had learned in the 60s in this sort of, that sort of West Coast style. And um, I did my Cub Scout and then my Scouts cooked badges. And to do that, you had to practice at home. And so my mum would, would help me. And she went out to work when I was 11. So increasingly, I would be home from school before she would get home from work. And I would start doing, you know, in the early stages, just putting the potatoes on. But I think over time, I started to kind of do things for her, which she would tell me what to do to be ready for dinner in the evening. And so over time, she taught me lots and lots of recipes and lots of the recipes that I use now and which are in the book start with things she taught me things I which she learned from my grandmother as well so there is a sort of core traditional English 60s 70s beginning although you know as has happened with food in our lives things have transformed so much over the last 40 50 years that we all cook and eat a much wider range of things and there's so many more ingredients you can buy in the shops but if it was a Monday night I'd probably cook a shepherd's pie and it wouldn't be that different from what my grandma would have been serving up for my dad in the 1940s. A bit different because there'd be garlic in it, which was kind of like anathema. <laughs> Evolution. My mum would never use garlic. We never had garlic at home in my whole upbringing. But she would say, she'd say, she'd say we're not French. <laughs> <laughs> and were you aware of an interest in food when, when you were younger, when you were doing this cooking? Or was it just part of your lifestyle? It was part of my lifestyle. I had a sister who really didn't like eating at all, especially anything green, so badly that she had this kind of rash on her hands, which my mum took her to the doctors in our village in Keyworth in Nottinghamshire when she was about nine, and it was declared to be scurvy. I mean, she ate so little green vegetables and vitamin C. I mean, I thought scurvy was only caught by sailors in the 19th century and 18th century on ships, but she got scurvy. And then my brother became a vegetarian age 10, which was like a disaster. I mean, a butcher's daughter with a vegetarian son, he passed out in a butcher's shop and that was the end of his meat eating. He's never eaten it again. So I think my mum was so disappointed in my sister and brother that I was the only one who could carry on the cooking heritage. And it was something I liked doing and something I could help out with her doing. I also, I was in a very traditional scout troop, which would go away every year for a 10-day camp, normally in North Yorkshire, all on wood fires, 
all the cooking done in your little group of six, your patrol. You'd get given the ingredients and then whether you could light the fire or not and whether you could cook it or not all determined whether you actually ate anything. So it was like, genuinely was. You, if you couldn't do it well, then it was bad for 10 days. So I think there was an element of necessity about it as well. And what about school food, Ed? Did you love it or loathe it? I liked it when I was in primary school. We had good food in the primary school, all cooked on site in that period where, you know, you had really, really good school cooks. And it was, I mean, it was really good. Although we had, had one term, my dad did this innovative thing in the early 70s. He did a swap for a term. He was a lecturer in biology at the University of East Anglia. And he did a swap with the head of biology at Eton. And the Eton uh, master went to UEA, to East Anglia University, and taught biology for a term. And my dad went and taught biology at Eton for a term, which led to, you know, 40 years later, to these Tory charges that I'd really gone to Eton, which was not, of course, (laughs) true. What I went to, age five, was a little primary school in Windsor, near Eton, while my dad was teaching at Eton. I mean, goodness me, politics can be weird sometimes <laughs> but in that we had to walk for what felt like miles but it was probably about 500 yards down the road in pairs to this dining hall from the school for this term and then a dinner lady with a, li- a whistle who came round blowing it really loudly and I used to sit in there with my anorak with my hood on and the food was terrible and that is probably my kind of darkest memory of school food. I went to Nottingham High School for secondary school and the food was just terrible. I mean, it was so bad that after a term, you know, this was a school of about 1,000 kids and there must have been only about 40 or 50 people had the school lunch. It was that bad. I'm sure later they transformed a bit at the time and it was just awful. So I have pretty bad memories of school food in the main, but Crossdale Drive Primary School Keyworth was really, really good. And what about when you went to university? Were you solely in catered halls? Were you sort of trying out your nascent dinner party techniques? What were you like as a student? I lived in college for all three years. For the first two, because everybody did. And I was at Keeble College. And the deal was everybody um, had to buy 30 meals a term. And it was a huge, big social thing. And we all went pretty much every time. So... There would be 200, 300 people there. It was a very big hall at Keeble. And so the food was good for what it was, you know, delivering for 300 people every day uh, like that. And then in my final year, I was the JCR president, the student president. So all my friends went and lived out for the third year. And I was the only one who had to live in college. I think at the time I was quite pleased about it because, you know, it was a big room. But as a result, I had three years of Keeble food. So I actually didn't really cook much at all. I had one of those those sort of electric toaster oven things, which are almost certainly now kind of ruled out of order in any college or university room because they were obviously an enormous fire risk. I never actually set fire to my room, but I did do a little bit of experimenting, cooking, but not much. And I then went to graduate school at Harvard for two years, where, again, I didn't cook that much. We cooked a bit in the second year. But the reality was, when you went to America, I mean, there was all these restaurants... And they were so good and affordable and everybody went out to eat. And I think we ate out almost all the time. And, you know, I was from a family where eating out was something we never did. I mean, I don't really remember 
going to restaurants at all with my mum and dad throughout my whole growing up. It, it was funny, I was talking to my dad because he read the book when it was published a few weeks ago and I talk about this one meal uh, we went to when I was 11 to the Shard in Tolerton for Sunday lunch because my mum had said we should go out to eat somewhere. We should go out for lunch. And it was the first time our family had ever eaten in a restaurant at all. The only thing I can remember is that the starter was um, prawn cocktail tomato soup or freshly squeezed orange juice. And because we didn't like prawns and my mum made tomato sauce, so we all had freshly squeezed orange juice for our starter. It was like really fancy. Anyway, so I mentioned this to my dad and he said, yes, he said, tell mistake. Didn't work out well. We all thought, what a waste of money. So that was the reason why we never went back again. We never went back for another seven years. I left home at 18, having basically never been to a restaurant with my parents, other than the one try, which was apparently judged a failure. I thought it was really exciting, the orange juice, but my dad said, no. We all thought, you know, your mother said, I could have cut this for half the price. And that was it. (laughs) (laughs) Ed, you've obviously spent a lot of your career working in politics. How important is food to a politician? Well, lots of stuff happens around food. So it is, I think in lots and lots of different ways, really important. I think the thing I reflected on when I was doing um, the appetite was that actually the one thing which isn't that important is the actual food, but the, the act of going out to eat is a really big deal. So if you are a minister or a cabinet minister, then going down to eat in the cafeteria, in the treasury or in the foreign office is a really important part of showing that you are available and around and people can come and talk to you. The same thing is true with ministers and cabinet ministers in the House of Commons. Going into the tea room or into the dining rooms is about being available and listening and showing you around. And that happens through eating. The truth is it's quite tribal. When you go to the members' dining room, huge room, but the tables at one end are for Labour, the other end are for Conservatives, one table in the middle for Liberals. People sit with their group. So it's quite a bonding experience. Then... If you sort of, if there's a bit of plotting going on, if people are thinking, is this going in the right direction? Do we need a change? Should there be a different leader? If you organise a meeting, then that looks a little bit like a plot on a cabal. So much better to just have a meal. So often important moments happen over food. Although, of course, what then happened during my time was you go from... uh, the meal being a way to disguise the plot it goes to any time you see any MPs out together having a meal they must be plotting and so it's sort of slightly turned upside down if you are on the international circuit as a minister going to meetings of you know the World Bank or the IMF the G7 the G20 the big international finance ministers meetings they will always happen over food and each country will use food to say something about their culture and what they're eating. Although in general, I would say nobody cares much about the food because actually you're more focused on the discussion. The only exception to that was um, once at a meeting of the IMF, I was sitting in the UK chair, Gordon Brown was chairing. There was 22 ministers, finance ministers from around the world discussing the reform of the IMF and whether there should be more representation for the emerging market economies. And I was sitting next to Sarkozy, who became the president, who at the time was the, the Minister for Finance. And this conversation was going on. And then he turned to me and said, this <laughs> is a ridiculous. These Americans, by the way, 
this was all said in a French accent, but I'm not going to try and do it. He said, this is ridiculous. These Americans, they don't know what they're doing. And I thought he was referring to the American argument with Brazil about quota representation in the IMF. And he pointed down at his stake and said, do they expect us to eat this? And I think basically he thought the stake was too well done. But that was like an unusual thing, you know, a finance minister who really actually cared about the food in general. In general, in politics, food is at the centre of everything, but the actual food is the least important thing going on. And of course, you're married to MP Yvette Cooper. How on earth did you find time to eat together and as a family when both of you were serving members of Parliament? Well, we, we never ate together in Parliament or in Westminster or politically, really. I mean, that, that was... It just wouldn't have happened. We'd have been doing different stuff. But I think for us, weekends, especially Saturday night but also a Sunday lunch were really important because that was the one time when we were definitely together with the children and that was the focus. And of course it became about a meal. We always had roast dinner on a Sunday, but normally on a Sunday we were also travelling from Castleford in Yorkshire down to London. So, you know, you'd eat it quickly and have to dash. But on a Saturday night, that was the one time where, you know, I could shop, you could cook, everybody would be together, we'd watch... Strictly or X Factor or a film. That was the most important night of the week. And I always did the cooking, mainly because Yvette gave up cooking when our first daughter was born and has never started since. So it was, I think I quite enjoyed it, but there was an element of survival to it as well. And what sort of things would you cook on those Saturday nights? I think I'd got a bit more experimental compared to my upbringing by that point. I quite often would do different sort of Asian-y Thai things which were quite mild because we were trying to get the children to be more adventurous in what they ate although increasingly over time I sort of gave in and also did chicken nuggets as well you try to find the one thing you know everybody's definitely going to um, eat and I think probably the mo- most often I would do like a a steak which would which which might actually be a bit spicy the kids kind of over time got into a little bit of like a, like a dry rub, a Texan dry rub on the outside of the steak. And then I had a really good Cajun spicy beans recipe. They really liked these potatoes with garlic and rosemary, quite like sautéed, almost like in the oven. And then maybe sticky toy pudding or... My daughter always wanted me to do baked Alaska, but it's a bit of a palaver, so I didn't do that often. It's a real fact. your book talks about that moment in 2015 when you when you lost your seat and the kind of shock of it and and how you then were at home and started cooking for your children afterwards what sorts of things were you cooking at that point was there kind of a comfort food that you you turned to well the stuff I was cooking were recipes that I'd been doing for for over the last 15 16 17 years and so I went back to the old staples mainly because that's what they they asked for our kids have always been fairly demanding about wanting things they know they like during the lockdown when we had all of our kids back again, I tried to experiment a bit. And after a week, there was basically a rebellion. My youngest daughter said, what are you doing? Why do you keep cooking all this new stuff? Just do the stuff you know we like. And that would be Thai chicken curry, spaghetti bolognese, lasagna, lots of different versions of stir fry, roast chicken. To be honest, all the recipes which are in the book tend to be the things that I was doing during that period. And I think after I came out of politics and suddenly I was at home more, 
and you reflect upon all the years when I hadn't been as home as much as I'd have liked to. And so I was so much enjoying it, doing the cooking. I was kind of happy to do whatever they wanted. And at the time when we had three kids at home, if they wanted different things, I was doing three different different meals. I and mean, it was kind of, it was a bit of a cafe, really. I quite enjoyed it, quite hard work, but it's brilliant. Are you an organised cook or a chaotic cook? I'm an organised cook, definitely. The thing I like to do is to do big cooking. So I think the most I've ever done is I catered for Yvette's 50th birthday year before last. I think we had 120 at that in the old mill in Castleford and I did pulled pork and treacle tart for 120. When I was a MP, we would have campaign Saturdays where we'd have people from all across Yorkshire come and deliver leaflets all day. And we had these really good labour rooms in Morley and my role was to cook lunch for all the activists. And so I often would do one of those recipes I've just mentioned for 70, 80, 90. My poor office staff, who thought they were there to solve constituent problems and sort of kind of campaign and do important parliamentary work, but also on a Friday afternoon, chop quite a lot of onions and garlic as we got ready for the cook the next day. At New Year, every year for the last 20 years, we've had 20 people come to stay for two or three days and I will cook every night. And if you cook for bigger numbers, you have to be organised and you have to um, clear as you cook. And if you're doing a big cook, you kind of want somebody else to um, do a bit of washing up for you because, you know, there's only so many whisks you can have in a house. But I'm somebody who definitely, if I was going to cook something, I would prep, have a little sort of mise-en-place style tray with everything ready, and then I would, then I would cook it. And that's just bitter experience because if you try and do it as you go for any number of people, it all gets mixed up and goes wrong. And so... When a vet cooks, which she almost never does, or is in the kitchen, even if it's just making a piece of toast, you can sort of you can track the route she followed from the fridge via the knife and the butter to the sink and back, and um, and you know the kind of the cliche of the the dad cook who ends up with a complete chaos from which they provide the plate. I'm not that kind of cook. I find that quite difficult. So I was doing an observer shoot just a couple of weeks ago for um, the weekend the book was coming out and they wanted me to have this um, big mess all around me and I think they thought I was going to sit in the middle of it and smile and actually I just found it I mean it was so appalling all this chaos around me so I kind of sat in the middle of it with this look of of horror at what was going on and I think you know there would be quite a lot of readers who might have looked at that and thought that my horror was that I was doing the cooking but actually the horror was I mean who was clearing this up? It's ridiculous. Tell us, Ed, about the birthday cakes you make. They obviously featured on Celebrity Best Home Cook. And... They did. That was a good week for me when they said do a, a celebration. We could do any celebration, but it was obvious for me that that meant a birthday cake. I, I don't know how it started, because I think when our first daughter was very young, um, we would have just you know, bought a caterpillar um, in a box from the supermarket. But quite early on, we got into me cooking a birthday cake for the children. And I also found this recipe for a sponge cake where you don't use butter, you use double cream to cream with the sugar. And it's such a good cake that adults like it too. So I had you know, a good adult-friendly birthday cake base. And as it went on, with you know, all our kids were summer-born, so they tended to have summer birthday parties, I would cause huge grief for my mother-in-law, who's also quite an organised person, but she likes to do things in advance. 
and I would always be still sort of waiting for the cake to come out of the oven as the children arrived for the birthday party. So she always thought I was like ridiculously just in time with my delivery. But the children were able to choose what cake they wanted. The early on, I had done the pirate ship cake, but they became quite inventive over the years to the point where sometimes it was disastrous. I mean, I had, had a good success with Princess Rugby League cake, good success with a Converse trainer's cake, um, <laughs> Moshi Monster, the, the pirate ship they've asked for a number of times. Bouncy Castle. A bouncy castle cake, cake is really hard because you have like a structural challenge. How do you make and, it look uh, like a bouncy castle? What's the kind of... Well, what I did was I basically carved out from the, the sponge and then tried to use dowel to get the thing to, to hold up because, of course, you need kids to be poking their head out from within the bouncy castle. There was a request once for a Coca-Cola can cake. And um, if you've ever tried to ice vertically, <laughs> it's not good. And um, so it ended up with my, my mother-in-law dashing out to the shop round the corner to buy a bottle of Coke so that we could then peel off the wrapper and then try and wrap it round this sort of... But it ended up more like the Leaning Tower Pizza than a Coca-Cola can. It was not... It was not, it was not the great thing, though, I think, about children's birthday cakes is a very important thing, especially for any parent to understand, is that um, however bad it looks or however wrong it goes... The children will love it. I mean, if you've made them a cake, they appreciate it just as much as if it turned out in the way you wanted. iPad cake I've done, Instagram cake. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you think of teenage iconic things for the last 10 years, they've all become a birthday cake. We had my daughter's first birthday earlier this year and I made her a teddy bear cake with a mask because it just felt oh, appropriate yes, like, like a, um, <laughs> have a, a mask on one. it. <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, you'll find as she gets older, if you start the tradition, they get very inventive about what they want. A hamburger cake was a good one. Yeah, Lots good of Norwich City football cakes. But the fundamental thing you need to remember is the kids will like the icing and they like to have recognisable sweets on the outside. One of the problems I had on Sport Relief Bake Off was that I made a ski jump cake for Sport Relief and I used curly whirlies and jelly babies and polos for the Olympic rings. And the judges were saying, you know, but you should have made this all yourself rather than using confectionery from the shops. And I'm thinking, yeah, but you don't understand. It's the children's birthday cake. The last thing they want is you making sweets. They want to have the <laughs> sweet, the proper ones you buy from the shops. But if you do that and at the same time have a cake which the adults will actually want to eat. That is the, the road to success in birthday cake making. And do you have a sweet tooth? Not hugely. There's certain things, actually, if I started eating, I'd want to eat more. I really like something like a treacle tart. But if, if I was going out for dinner to a restaurant, I would almost always choose the cheese over the, the sweet. So I think probably I'm at the margin more um, savoury. And I, most of the cooking I do would be, would be not sweet. I kind of think fiddling around with chocolate and sugar is... Um, Quite hard work for the home cook. One of the key things for a home cook is to know the things that you can do better than you buy in the shops and the things which the shops will always do better than you. So I think at home you always do a better meringue, but you should never try and make puff pastry because you've got just no chance. And I think probably the best confectionery is just better bought. Although I did manage in on Best Home Cook, I managed to make 
white chocolate sales. And they worked really well. The, um, the only reason I did it was Yvette, who I think she was trying to claw back ground after the disaster of the light gravy, which Yvette said Mary Berry would want with roast chicken and Mary Berry didn't want the light gravy. She wanted a dark gravy and it was a bit of an issue in our marriage um, and relationship for a while. <laughs> but Yvette to try to claw back ground, then started saying, the pirate ship's all very well, but you should make a chocolate sale. And I said, you can't make a chocolate sale, that's ridiculous. How did you do that? And I then started to think how to do it. And I basically got a greaseproof paper and poured a, a round of quite thin white chocolate and then pushed it so that it kind of rolled, paper clipped it, put it in the fridge, and it set so that you could then take off the paper and you had this billowing sail. I mean, marvellous. Anyway, so as you can see, it was a vet's idea. <laughs> Ed, what's comfort food for you? We know what your children like. What do you always turn to? Well, there's a difference between the things I would like if I was going out somewhere fancy or comfort food at home. I think in the end, I think probably because of my mum's dad being a butcher and our upbringing, it would go back to meat and, if I'm honest with you, in a sort of 70s-style way, pork derivative. But anything which has at its core pork, I really like. And it's fancy and that can be poor pork. But it's really hard to be a pork pie. And um, a bacon sandwich would be my sort of most comfort food. The best steak is the best thing you ever eat. But my comfort food would be um, something which, is, which has pork. Although, having said that, my mum's dad, the butcher, who I never met, my grandfather, every evening went to the pub. And then when he came home, he had fish and chips. Every night of the week. Unbelievable for a butcher. The only food we ever had, which was like bought out when I was growing up, was fish and chips on a Friday, bought in from the fish and chip shop. And so in terms of comfort home food, actually, fish and chips would be pretty high up there as well, definitely. Just on the subject of bacon sandwiches, Ed Miliband obviously came a cropper with one. Do you laugh about it now? Well, if, I think we would laugh about it now, although I'm not, I'm not totally sure if he's quite laughing about it. Yet, uh, I think he probably, uh, you know, Ed's, um, gonna, I think has had a really good response to what happened in 2015 and his books and podcasts have been hugely successful because he's smiled and laughed. And as I say in the book, you know, if only he'd asked me. <laughs> because the thing about being the education secretary, children's, I was secretary for children's schools and families, I ate out on camera in very, very many school halls. And so you learn that there's classic rules about food you can eat on camera and it's really important whatever you're eating needs to be manipulable with a knife and fork so pizza a catastrophe because you can't eat pizza <laughs> with a knife and fork spaghetti bolognese catastrophe because it's not really possible to manipulate spaghetti bolognese in a suitable way for a camera shot soup is quite hard because it drips what you want is something which is discreet and morsel based so, you know, a fried egg and bacon on a plate is actually quite deliverable. Although, if you're going to be filmed, you should probably ask for the egg to be, you know, to have a slightly harder yolk, just to be, to be safe. But a bacon sandwich, can't use a knife and fork. Very hard to um, eat it morsel by morsel. As Ed showed, you have to just go for it. But the problem is, there's always a danger that it's going to look like the sandwich is eating you rather than the other way around. And that is, that's what happened. And if he'd asked me, I'd have said, no, 
<laughs> I'd have said I'd had I'd say a bacon egg sticker for the sandwich. He didn't. And the rest is history. This is the wisdom he needed. <laughs> well, uh, l- let's be honest. Let's be honest. There was more going on. <laughs> there was more going on. We faced greater challenges in that period than that particular moment. And we usually end by asking about your desert island meal. So, oh my gosh! I mean, you can you can have whatever you want, but you know, say three courses, no holds barred. Your ultimate meal. It can be something from your past. It can be something you've cooked, someone else has cooked. Whatever you want. What are you having? Gosh, desert island meal is really hard. Talking about food, which you know you could never cook at home. We once went out in uh, Barcelona to this. Michelin starred restaurant, which looked like actually, I mean, it was a very kind of appealing place. It was, it was like walking into, um, to you know, a travel lodge. I don't mean that to not travel lodges, but it didn't look hugely fancy. Within which it had this Michelin starred meal, and the guy did this cockle in a sea broth, just in a little glass, and it was like it was, it was so amazing. It was like having your whole head dunked in the sea. Such was its seeiness. That would be my desert island starter. And then I think I will go for roast beef and Yorkshire pudding for my main course. And although my mum has dementia, she wouldn't be able to cook it now at all. But I'd quite like her to kind of somehow emerge from her dementia state to cook it, because that would be very nice. I'd like to have my mum's gravy again. She was very, very good at gravy. Then for dessert, I think for the children, because I know this is what they would choose, I'll have like a strawberry and raspberry pavlova. If I'm feeling frustrated, I could bash it up in a bowl and then it would be an eaten mess. And knowing I could have an eaten mess if I wanted, but I'm choosing not to, (laughs) that would be enough. Ed, thank you very much for joining Table Talk. And Ed's new book, Appetite, is available now. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe. And if you've really enjoyed it, please do leave us a star rating and review. It really helps us out.